You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. In its own cultural setting, Jesus' nonviolence was a means of, of self-affirmation for those who, 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 who don't have access to common power. And it, it's, it's, it's not illustrated best by, by the cross, but by Jesus' temple protest. And linking Jesus' nonviolence to the cross instead, it, it, that, that's a way to promote the, the historic myth of redemptive suffering. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 251 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of survival, resistance, liberation, reparation, and transformation. Our title this week is Self-Affirming Nonviolence and the Myth of Redemptive Suffering. It's uh, part one, I believe. It's going to be two parts at least, but our featured text is Matthew six thirteen, and lead us not into temptation or the time of trial, but deliver or liberate us from evil. I want to talk about Jesus's teachings on nonviolence this week and next, and I have some concerns uh, about them. I'm concerned about how those who benefit from the violence of the status quo, how they continually co-opt nonviolence to condemn those who who rise up against injustice while while leaving their own use of violence on the the vulnerable uh, unaddressed and, and and untouched uncritiqued and I'm also concerned about how some uh, use Jesus's nonviolence to promote uh, self-sacrifice for for those whose self is already being sacrificed in its own cultural setting Jesus's nonviolence was a means of of self-affirmation for those who who who, who don't have access to common power and it's it's best illustrated, and we're going to talk about this at length both this week and next. It's not illustrated best by by the cross, but by Jesus's temple protest and linking Jesus's nonviolence to the cross instead. It, 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 that's a way to promote the the historic myth of redemptive suffering, and it centers victimizers at the expense of of survivors and victims. And I, I want to unpack some of these ideas over the next two weeks and see if we can understand Jesus's teachings on nonviolence in a healthier, more life-giving, and, and socially transformative way. And first, let's talk about the historical backdrop uh, upon which Jesus took up the methods of nonviolence. We're all shaped by the times in which we live, and Jesus grew up in the wake of, of the Judas Rebellion, which raised the, the near-to-Nazareth city of Zephyrus, and led, uh, or Zipporah, depending on your pronunciation, and it led to the, the crucifixion of some 2,000 Jewish people outside Jerusalem. And this rebellion and Rome's violent crushing of it, it took place in 4 BCE. And you can read about it from Josephus in his Jewish Antiquities. I'll put a reference to it in a page number, uh, chapter 17, actually page 295. But I'll put all that in this week's uh, East Side as well. But Jesus, he would have witnessed the aftermath of this rebellion firsthand. He would have grown up in that aftermath. And within Judaism um, at that time, there there was also some understanding of, of 
of forms of nonviolent resistance to Rome that were already being practiced by, by some Jewish people. In 26 CE, during, during the time of Jesus, it would have been just previous to when uh, many scholars believe Jesus engaged in his ministry, his teaching ministry. But Josephus tells us about a, a standards or an in signs incident that took place in Jerusalem, where Rome sought to place a, a Roman standard in Jerusalem itself. And viewing the standard as a, a violation of the Torah against images or idols, uh, Jewish adherents, they used a form of nonviolent resistance to stop these standards from being posted. Josephus tells us about uh, uh, this incident in War, chapter 2, uh, pages 175 through 203. Uh, he, he writes, at this time, the Jews, as though by agreement, they fell to the ground in a body. They bent their necks and shouting that they were ready to be killed rather than transgress the law. Now, now after Jesus, we see both methods of resistance, both violent methods of resistance and nonviolent methods of, of resistance being used by the, the Jewish community in resistance to Rome. In 40 CE, uh, Rome attempted, uh, similar to the previous example, Rome attempted to place a statue of Gaius Caligula in the temple in Jerusalem itself. And again, Josephus tells us that Jewish adherence to Torah, they used a, a form of nonviolent resistance. And it could be that this was the, the only form of resistance that they had at their disposal, but a group in mass, they laid down before the Roman soldiers, and this is from Antiquities, um, he cry, it cried out, they cried out, uh, on no account would we fight, but we will die sooner than violate our laws. And Philo, too, he tells us of this same incident. He writes in his uh, Legatio Ad Gaim, he writes, when the Jews at large got to know of the scheme, they staged mass demonstrations of protest before Petronius, who by then was in Phoenicia with an army. And the result was that the, the statue of Caligula uh, was, was never placed. It wasn't placed there. But, but next came the Jewish and Roman War of, of 66 to 69 CE, uh, which began as a, a poor people's revolt, and it climaxed in, in 70 CE with Rome raising Jerusalem. And lastly, we have the Bar Kochba revolt, which, which followed about 60 years later, and it's often referred to as the, the third Jewish revolt between 132 to 136 CE. And as a result of, of this violent revolt, 580,000 Jewish uh, men perished, and, and many more women and children died of hunger and disease, and, and Rome sold many of the survivors in, into slavery. The Jewish communities of Judea they were devastated to the point of, of genocide. And Jewish violent revolt against Rome, it seemed to only result in greater devastation. While, while nonviolent resistance, it at least gained some short-term and, and partial result. And although Jesus would have only personally witnessed some of this history, it, it would have been enough to have, he would have been exposed to these ideas. These ideas were in the, 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 the works. They were in his culture. And he, uh, he would would have been exposed to them at least enough to have led him to the conclusion, I believe, that if, if liberation were possible, 
it had the best chances uh, for them with nonviolence and rooted in, in, in liberation of the oppressed. And you can find that, that emphasis in the Gospels in Luke 4, 18, and a compassionate desire for those being dehumanized to, to stand in, in the power of their, their Yahweh-given dignity and worth. Jesus emerged and, and began to teach, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, Renewed Heart Ministries, we have several resources on on how to understand these words in their own cultural setting. And a lot of this research is rooted in the research of Walter Wink and and scholars like him. And, And far from teaching, and we've gone over this, but far from teaching passivity or or simply being a doormat, these words, they teach a type of cheek resistance. They they teach a way to to shame one's oppressors and and exploitative and and unjust and cruel economic structures. And they also teach uh, refusing to play by oppressors' rules and putting power back into the hands of of the oppressed. And and if you would like to, if, if, if this interpretation of this passage is new to you, if you're not familiar familiar with, with our resources and that. I'm going to give you a link to an e-site to read in this week's uh, e-site. Um, and, and also go to Renewed Heart Ministries and just listen to this month's feature presentation. It it also includes some really relevant uh, details on, on helping us unpack this within a Jewish culture, understanding it in their culture rather than ours. The conclusions are radically different between how it's used today to make people or to turn people rather into, into doormats, where back then it was teaching them creative ways to to stand in their their uh, their human dignity and to 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 resist Jesus's teaching on nonviolence. Um, these teachings are modeled in his temple protest, and too often, as we said earlier, his nonviolence. What I believe is that it's wrongly thought to be modeled on the cross, and this leads again to two mistakes. The first is that if we use the cross to understand Jesus's nonviolence, it almost every time leads to defining nonviolence as a passive response to, to, to persecution or injustice. You just stretch out your arms and, and you endure the suffering. But, but the cross didn't demonstrate Jesus's passivity. The cross happened because those who were protecting the status quo were rightly feeling threatened by Jesus's nonviolence resistance toward the temple state. And the second mistake, which we'll cover in detail next week, is that we begin to believe the myth that passive or patient endurance or, or suffering, that that's redemptive. Jesus was teaching a nonviolent form of civil disobedience, of, of direct action or, or, or resistance. And one of my favorite passages in Mark, it, it, that passage hints at, at why we should interpret Jesus's overturning the tables, the temple tables, as a protest against the, the economic exploitation of the poor. In Mark eleven eleven, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And what we call today uh, Jesus's triumphal entry, it was originally supposed to have ended with Jesus entering the temple that Sunday evening or Sunday night, dismounting the donkey and overturning the tables immediately in protest. He was entering the heart of the temple state to, to shut it down 
and to prevent uh, business as usual. And instead, he entered and he looks around and as Mark says, since it was already late and, and understand what that means, most people, they weren't present and, and there was not much going on in the temple to even shut down. So he returned uh, uh, to his his friend's home in Bethany with, with his 12 disciples and went back to the temple uh, the following morning when, when economic exploitation was in full swing. This was not a passive plan. And those who respond with passivity to injustice, those people don't get crucified. Uh, in Gandhi's Nonviolence in Peace and War, Volume 1, page 16, he, he wrote, and he, talking about Jesus, has been acclaimed in the West as the prince of passive resistors. I showed years ago in South Africa that the adjective passive was a misnomer, at least as applied to Jesus. He was the most active resistor known perhaps to history. His was nonviolence par excellence. Uh, the Jesus that we see in the story, he didn't teach peacekeeping uh, through, through nonviolent passivity. He taught peacemaking through, through nonviolent establishment of a distributive justice. And if that's new, a new idea to you, uh, check out the, the series. It's a three-part series on our website in the audio presentation library entitled The Lord's Prayer, A Prayer for Resistance and Liberation. But peacemaking, it's never accomplished through peace keeping in an unjust status quo. That's why in Matthew 10, 34, we we find these words, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus was standing in solidarity with those who had been marginalized and pushed to the undersides of their society. And he didn't come just to keep peace with that. He came to be disruptive, to be divisive, to not uh, promote peace uh, in the short term, as defined by by non-disturbance or, or peace as defined by by um, just just going along with things. Um, but a, but a sword. Jesus's followers were continually, they were labeled as troublemakers and disturbers of the peace. Jesus was working towards peace. He was a prince of peace in the sense that he was working for a distributive justice that would lead to peace. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, just uh, rolling over again and being passive. But in Acts 17, 6 through 7, notice how it describes the early followers of Jesus. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. And and again, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is one that, um, though we'll critique uh, some of his stuff next week when we talk about the myth of redemptive suffering, um, this is one of the areas where I believe King got it right. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. rightly stated, whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. And you can find uh, that in his letter from the Birmingham jail. And again, Gandhi in his uh, Young India, January 8, 1920, page three, he or paragraph three, he, he writes, nonviolence does not mean 
mean meek submission to the will of the evildoer. It means the pitting of one's whole soul against the will of the tyrant. Working under this law of our being, it is possible for a single individual to defy the whole might of an unjust empire to save his honor, his religion, his soul, and lay the foundation for that empire's fall or its regeneration. This is what we see Jesus doing in response to the temple state and the exploitation of the poor in his own days, overturning of the tables. The value of nonviolent forms of resistance is that they enable those who practice them to not become like their oppressors. And in other words, nonviolence can provide a path for a people who are oppressed to not dehumanize oppressors the way that oppressors have dehumanized them. And understood as a form of resistance, nonviolence enables us to to resist, to stop injustice, while simultaneously maintaining our connectedness to the humanity of those who who oppress. And as I've often said, I don't know of a better statement that captures this balance than the example of the the two hands metaphor that's used by Barbara Deming in the book Revolution and Equilibrium. Um, She uses this example. With one hand, we say to the one who is angry or to an oppressor or to an unjust system, stop what you are doing. I refuse to honor the role you are choosing to play. I refuse to obey you. I refuse to cooperate with your demands. I refuse to build the walls and the bombs. I refuse to pay for the guns. With this hand, I will even interfere with the wrong you are doing. I want to disrupt the easy pattern of your life. But then, the advocate of nonviolence raises the other hand. It is raised outstretched, maybe with love and sympathy, maybe not, but always outstretched. And with this hand, we say... I won't let go of you or cast you out of the human race. I have faith that you can make a better choice than you are making now. I'll be here when you are ready. Like it or not, we are part of one another. And that's on on page 69. But when understood as resistance, nonviolence, it must not be used to keep people who are facing oppression and exploitation in a state of passivity. Nonviolence is not a, a critique of resistors as much as it is a protest, first and foremost, of the violence that produces the need for resistance. In in John Sabrino's book, Jesus the Liberator, page 215, he writes, First, Jesus' practice and teaching, it demands absolutely the unmasking of and the resolute struggle against the form of violence that is the worst and the most generative of others because it is the most inhuman and the, and the historical principle at the origin of all dehumanization, structural injustice in the form of institutionalized violence. It follows that we have to unmask the frequent attitude of being scandalized at revolutionary violence and the victims it produces without having been scandalized first and more deeply at its causes. Too often we become scandalized by the violence of resistors while we fail to to get to even be moved by by the violence of of the system itself that produces victims and survivors. But lastly, when nonviolence becomes synonymous with passivity or or as we'll we'll see next week, 
self-sacrifice, when it becomes synonymous with self-sacrifice rather than resistance, the only other pathway that could lead toward change, that can lead toward change, the only other pathway that's left for people in response to injustice is a violent path. It's violence. And that's what King was trying to say in 1968 in his speech, The Other America. He said, I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. In a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having this reoccurring violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantor of riot prevention. And John F. Kennedy also remarked uh, on the first anniversary of, of the Alliance for Progress on March 13, 1962, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. So as we move into part two of this article next week, this week, let's consider ways that, that we might practice that value, the value that's at the, the heart of Jesus's teachings on nonviolence and that's resistance. Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation or the time of trial, but deliver us or liberate us from evil. Heart group application this week, resistance can come in many forms. And, and yes, there is public in the streets activism that, that should be done. And there are other forms of resistance as well. Kneeling at, at, at football games is a nonviolent form of resistance for athletes. Uh, I know professors who intentionally teach uh, specific methods and, and content as an expression of, of, of resistance. Some people tell stories, some people write, some sing, uh, some do theater, some produce films, uh, some organize educational events, uh, others wash dishes or make sandwiches or have their own garden or they lend help and support anywhere they can. Resistance can begin as simply as in a, a coffee shop or within conversations merely with, with family and friends. As, as Bayard Rustin said, we need in every community, a group of angelic troublemakers. So number one this week, what are some of the ways that you resist systemic injustice in your day-to-day life? And list them out. What are some of the ways that you already do that? And then number two, what are some ways that that your heart group as a, a community, as a collective can resist? And list those as well. And then number three, lean into these lists and and and, and a living of, of practicing resistance this week. And don't allow the the machine to drive you endlessly through the rat race of of the status quo again uh, uh, this week. Uh, Resist. Thank you for checking in with us this week. Wherever this finds you, keep living in love, survival, resistance, liberation, reparation, and transformation. Remember, another world is possible. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week with part two.